You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared history should be held in common and accessible to all. A history of lesbianism. How they came into the world, the women-loving women came in three by three and four by four. The women-loving women came in ten by ten and ten by ten again. You know, I always say that when people walk into this room, even today, and they see 11,000 books about by or about lesbians, they are blown away because who would ever tell you that that number of books exist? And it's, you know, it's your history. It's your history that no one has ever told you about. That was Maxine Wolf, a volunteer at the Lesbian History Archive. The archive is housed in a homey brownstone in Park Slope, Brooklyn. The place has a kitchen that visitors can use to make coffee and tea. There are couches and tables for reading, and the shelves are filled with the books Maxine was describing. Lonnie Han and I sat down with Maxine and Rachel Corbin at the dining room table to talk about the founding of the archive, which originally started in the home of Deb Edel and Joan Nessel in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Joan and Deb were part of a women's consciousness group. The Gay Academic Union was one of the groups that formed right after the Stonewall um, riots. And there were many groups that formed. And it wasn't really all academics. Some people were in it were academic, you know, technically academics, and others were not. And it was also the sort of the, the height of the lesbian feminist moment. It was like 1973, 74. It was that whole thing about, you know, everybody's all, everybody's focusing on men, nobody's talking about women, we need to have a group. And so they started this group to talk about what they could do. Um, And one of the things that they realized was that most of the material that existed was very negative uh, about lesbians and not very, you know, and not accessible and not... um, Uh, really reflective of people's lives. And so they decided that what they would do is that they would make a commitment to collect, to document, and preserve lesbian lives for the future. And they started doing that by asking friends of theirs to donate materials that they owned. And people did. Um, Mabel Hampton, who was an African-American lesbian who was older, she died in 1989. She was 87 years of age. And Joan knew her from childhood, practically. And she gave, like, copies of pulp novels and things of that sort. And then they knew, you know, contemporary people like Adrian Rich and Audre Lorde, and they gave papers. And, and they collected all of these things. And then what they would do is they put them into shopping bags. And they would go to um, any place that there were lesbians, like bars, meetings, churches, whatever, and they would say, you know, give us your material, this is what we have. It was, it was building trust amongst the members of the community that, that, that they wouldn't be giving their things to a, a, an organization that was going to be fly by night and that would disappear and their history would disappear with it. Because after all, people gave us photographs and, you know, did oral histories and, uh, you know, things that they saved to remember. Bar, you know, T-shirts from bars and just a whole range of things that you don't think about as being personal, but they are when they kind of define who you are and the world is not, 
willing to accept who you are. It's it's very personal. It's so funny when you say materials, you really just mean like the things in people's houses. Yes. Well, you know, once when when the when the New York Public Library was doing their first big exhibit, which was called Becoming Visible, they they came to the Lesbian and Gay Community Center and they had all these people sitting up on the dais. Okay, none of whom were out. And, but they were all working for the New York Public Library. And in the audience, there must have been 400 lesbians and gay men, okay? And they, one person stood up and said, we're here because we're, we're calling for people to give us materials because we can't, we don't have enough material. Then this man stood up and he said, and we especially need information from lesbians because we can't, we hardly have any of that. And one woman yelled out, come to my basement. Okay, yeah, of course, like we all had that material, like we all saved it. Why did we save it? I don't know, because it was part of our history. It's why you save photographs of your family or your friends or places, you you know, mementos of places you've been to. Um, That's funny, because what you're saying, too, is that like you had to convince people that this is history. Yes, and that it was important, you know, there are, especially when older women come here, a lot of older women come here and they cry because this is a place that is not a basement. It's not dark. It doesn't, it, it, it is a place that says to them, you are somebody, you know, your life is worthwhile. When we were thinking what should be on the first floor, we decided that on the first floor should be things that the quotes casual user would be interested in. The videos, the photographs, the pulp novels, you know, fiction, um, not the researcher journals okay those are upstairs because we wanted people to think of it as a place where they could come on an afternoon when it's raining and sit down and read a book at interference archive we have an open access policy which then requires us to only accept materials that can't be restricted in any way because we want everyone well we don't have that ability to restrict access and i know that there are collections here that do have restricted access it in theory, anyone can come in, take down whatever they want on any shelf, and use it. Uh, and so we do have open stacks to in in that sense. But in practice, as Maxine was saying, um, the stuff on this floor is more accessible than the the special collections are, for example. Um, and the special collections are the material that we do have tend to have, in in some cases, restrictions on. The restrictions are. And this is another thing that distinguishes us from traditional archives. It's whatever anyone wants is the restriction they can have on the collection. So we have some collections that are, and this is written on the form, for lesbian eyes only. So in practice, I don't know how I would actually implement that policy, but it's basically the kind of thing that you have to trust the, the researchers. And most researchers here really do respect the collection. We allow people to make whatever... Um, restrictions on it they want to, even though we urge people to make it accessible, as much of it as accessible as possible. And some of it is makes common sense. Okay, for instance, there was once a woman who came and gave us stuff who was a lesbian nun, okay, and she gave us photos and just a whole slew of stuff. Of, of her life in various convents with other lesbians, okay, who are not out, and she wasn't out either. But she didn't mind if her stuff was available, but she couldn't give the rights to other people, okay, being available. So 
I just told her to separate her collection into sections and to mark which ones everybody could read and mark which ones not. Yeah, I know the whole structure is of your archive is counter-institutional and you maintain that it's a home and it actually does have like a very homey feel. I feel like I'm sitting in your living room <laughs> and it's very comfortable, you know. And um, I, what we're always trying to negotiate is that even though we have similar things, we don't have anyone living there. That'd be right. nice, but <laughs> we don't have that. Um, but we have this open policy and we tell people as soon as they come in, please take, a, take whatever box off dig through um not most but a lot of people are not comfortable with that unless they are in that academic kind of research world where archives are a place that they're already familiar I actually in some ways have experienced the opposite where it's people who are more familiar with archives who have more trouble figuring out how to negotiate this space there there was one researcher in particular I remember she would just ask me like she was working on the photo collection and every single fo- um, folder she took out, she was like, can I take out this folder? And I'm like, yeah. And next folder, she's like, and now can I take out this folder? I'm like, you could take out as many folders as you want, just put them back. There's also one researcher I remember who, she came in with this question about Audrey and Rich. So I mistakenly assumed that she wanted to see Audrey and Rich's papers. And so I took down the box and she was just so intimidated to be in front of this collection of personal papers that had been personally donated by Audrey and Rich. So I I see both things happening. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think that um, one of the ways, obviously, is that it looks like a house. So, you know, people, it, it doesn't immediately, for people who are not academics, it doesn't immediately say don't touch at all. Um, most academics have been to archives where, A, they have to check their bags at the door, okay, they can't use anything but a pencil in the entire space. And I think that at times, I agree with you, that they're the ones who have more trouble sort of realizing that they could just do what they want to do. We occasionally misplace something and we all panic. Like, huh, where are those... Where are those letters? I mean, oh, they're so important. Where are they? You know, and, and everybody thinks that we lost them or somebody took them, and two minutes later we find them. You know, we have never not found something that we thought was lost. Okay, but sometimes people, you know, will get somebody will start uh, volunteering at the archives, and they don't get it, and they'll say, well, maybe we should just make everybody show it's in their bag before they leave, and then we always have the same exact discussion, and the discussion is it goes like. Really? Like, because one person is, like, not behaving properly, we're going to do that to everybody? What about our principles? And then we go back to our principles, which I do want to say, you know, we have a set of principles that has guided the archives from the beginning. And in almost every decision that we make, we end up going back to them in some way or another and saying, well, you know, we said that this is open to all people, you know, how, how, how are we going to do X if we don't do that? You know what I mean? So it's, it's, the principles have really done us well over 42 years. They have become, they are really the backbone of what has kept us alive and going because we can always go back to them to make decisions that are difficult. Well, because you are intergenerational and because I feel like you attract people of different ages, like, but like, how do you, um, like, what, what do you think is the utility now, or how has the utility changed? Does that make sense? I can't think of a, another space that feels so specifically lesbian, and that combines 
feminist and queer things together so well for me. Um, most other queer spaces that I know of in the city feel very masculine in a lot of ways. And um, a lot of feminist places don't feel very lesbian. And so this is different. And I really can't think of another place that's comparable. And that's why on a personal level, I like to volunteer here so much. Younger people come just to be here and they feel at home is just the only way I can say it. You know, they feel comfortable. So even though the world outside has changed, well, and I also want to say that everybody thinks that everything has changed. Okay. A lot of things have not changed. Okay. And, um, there, most young people are still not accepted by their family when they're gay. Most of them are stay closeted and have to come out. Um, you know, most of them, uh, can't find a place to be where they can be themselves. So even though the world has changed on, a, on, on the level up here, 50 people were killed in Orlando. You know what I'm saying? Like you have to understand that the world hasn't changed so much in a lot of places. And even in Brooklyn, kids commit suicide. So you can't lose touch with that. So we've always seen the archives as part of the movement, you know, as contributing to the struggles for liberation for all of our communities. And, and, um, and as such, we speak to a lot of people that otherwise would have no place to go. That was Maxine Wolf and Rachel Korbman at the Lesbian Herstory Archive. The interview was conducted by myself, Brooke Schumann, and Lonnie Hanna. The music and spoken word comes from Lesbian Concentrate, a 1977 album by Olivia Records. Visit the archive or find out about their upcoming events at lesbianherstoryarchive.org. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.